comes from the inside out. When we're living congruently with our values, there's happiness because there is that sense of wholeness. Is wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Today we are going to take and begin a deep dive into the Enneagram. I love the Enneagram. It's been something that I have learned so much about and it's helped me understand myself. It's helped me understand others and it's just an amazing tool. It's unlike any other personality test out there because within the actual diagram, the the way that it's set up, the symbol of it, which I love symbols, not only tells you about who you are, it helps guide you through to know how to calm yourself or what your weaknesses are, how to strengthen yourself. As we get started, I'm using two, maybe three or four references for these podcasts. And number one, I first learned most about the Enneagram from Richard Rohr. He has a ton of videos on YouTube. He has a ginormous book that I have devoured more than once. And uh, he's just been kind of the expert, the first one kind of talking about it um, early in the 80s, maybe. I'm taking a lot of today's special, especially uh, information from a book, Enneagram Empowered, uh, Discover Your Personality Type and Unlock Your Potential by Laura Miltonsberger. And I'll put a link to this book in the show notes. And it's a great book. I love it. So what is the Enneagram? <laughs> the Enneagram is really a nine-pointed figure. It's like a pentagram has five points on the circle. This is a nine point. There's all sorts of shapes that have different points on them. And this, that's what this is, is it's a nine pointed um, figure or symbol, but it's mostly known for this personality type. And it's not typical because it doesn't just descri- describe your par- characteristics and traits. It goes deeper. It describes the driving forces behind your personality like your core fears and motivations. It describes your strengths and virtues. It addresses your weaknesses and your obstacles to your growth. But what's interesting is the Enneagram is always programmed into itself a way to improve. You might say that a certain type will have a virtue and a a vice. The key to get over your vice is your virtue, but the key to increase your virtue is your vice. So that's what I loved about it. It was like there was this this personality test that said, hey, everything about you is purposeful and has meaning and is important. And we're going to use the things that you think are your biggest weaknesses and we're going to turn them into your strengths. That's the key to your power is who you are, is what's showing up. That's showing you something. So... Why is the Enneagram empowering? Because personal weaknesses can be difficult to accept, but when you realize which patterns in your personality are holding you back, then you know what you need to change in order to grow. Nothing is more empowering than when you take ownership of your whole self, along with all of your beauty and all of your flaws. It's when you use your strengths with confidence while still addressing your weaknesses and then you move forward in maturity and growth. So the Enneagram is thought to be an ancient uh, symbol, an ancient way of viewing the world, and there's a lot of um, misunderstanding. People don't like to think of it as something ancient, so that's just something to note. You'll, you'll see arguments about the Enneagram because of that. So that, But the Enneagram is a symbol with nine points, and each point describes a unique personality. One of these numbers is your dominant personality type, but all nine points of the Enneagram are interconnected. Like you'll see, I'm going to have a a download, a link to a download in the notes for this um, Enneagram with a lot of information on it. In the Enneagram, the lines, the way they're connected during times of 
security or balance, when we want to gain balance, then we will access traits on that along that line. And during times of stress, you will notice that you take on uh, attributes of your stress connection. The Enneagram helps you understand yourself as you are while showing you paths towards healthy change. Your core or dominant Enneagram type is based on your core fears, motivations, and obstacles. And you will relate to all nine of the types in one way or another. But your dominant type is the one that speaks most directly to your life experience. They have names. So type one is known as the reformer. Type two is known as the helper. Type three is the achiever. Type four is the individualist. Type five is the investigator. Type six is called the loyalist. Type seven is the enthusiast. And type eight is the challenger. And type nine is called the peacemaker. So the goal of the Enneagram is to help you find acceptance for who you are and also freedom to become much more. You will find valid reasons behind your unfelt, unhelpful behavioral patterns. And you might say, oh, that's why I self-sabotage my relationships or, oh, that's why I lose my temper at these situations. This recognition and self-awareness will hopefully enable you to have more compassion for yourself in those circumstances. That's the goal here. Learning about this pattern is an invitation for you to get space and freedom from these difficult patterns that show up. The Enneagram will help you understand why you act the way you do. The goal is that you let this empower you to stretch, to take small steps out of your comfort zone and grow into a better person than you were. The Enneagram type has unique obstacles that play a crucial part in your specific kind of pain and suffering or frustration. These obstacles are patterns of thinking, feeling, or behaving that you probably developed initially as a way of coping in the world or protecting yourself. Often these patterns of coping are no longer needed and are maybe even getting in the way of your life. For example, a child who gets scolded for crying might learn that it goes better for them when they ignore their feelings so they don't cry, right? But as they grow up, they might realize that ignoring their own feelings has caused problems. And so this coping mechanism that existed in childhood is now not only not needed, but is causing a problem. Your dominant Enneagram type has a set of core fears and motivations. They are the driving force behind your personality. While your behavior behaviors and characteristics are what you do, right? So you, your behaviors and characteristics are about the actions you take, what you do. Your fears and motivations are the reasons why you do the things you do. And that's so empowering when you find that out. Acknowledging these fears and motivations help you make sense of why you make the choices you make and why and how and what ways you make sense of the world and how you see it. It's important that you consider fears and motivations and the role they have in your life so that you can cultivate a sense of self-compassion, an ingredient you will need to change. So often we punish ourselves. Our self-talk can be so cruel and yet it is not motivating. Those kind of words are not motivating. They just are not and think about that in parenting too. We we don't get motivated by nature of our humanness by angering or or belittling or putting ourselves or others down. So in the Enneagram, like I talked about before, we have this stress. We go into stress and and they're connected. It'll make sense when you download the paper, but we have these stress types, or we have this, they call it a security type, or the type place that we can go to bring in some balance. So the stress type is the number that you move toward during times of stress or insecurity. So for me, particularly, I'm a type two. Think of this. I normally, as a type two, my my nature is more of a gentle nature. That's more of my truth. 
But man, if I get stressed or if I get insecure, I will move into an eight that's very challenging, which is doesn't look like me at all. And so because it's not my nature, then when I turn into that, that's not my nature, it feels even more repulsive to the people I'm with because it doesn't match who I really, really am. And so it causes this dissonance inside that other person and they're having more than just the words I'm talking to them if I'm angering at them. It's more than just the words I'm saying. There's this dissonance because it's not who I really am. I'm not being true to myself. So by knowing that, by recognizing that, I can learn a whole new way of dealing with my stress. And one of those ways is to move into our balance type. And this is the type or the number that you move toward during times to get security and and health. So my security type is, or balance type is a type four. So I have done that quite a bit. One of the things I have learned is that when I am stressed, if I can go and create something, which is a, it makes a beautify something is what you might say, which is a strong, beautiful type four trait. If I lean into that and create something, I calm myself down and move away from stress. And so it's super helpful to understand these. She says in the book, it is important to note, however, that it is unhelpful and counterproductive to try and act like your security type or take on the traits of that type to become that person, right? Growth only happens when you accept yourself as you are with compassion. And then you can have the opportunity at the same time to seek and break free from unhealthy or unhelpful patterns of your dominant type. So I use strengths of a type four to come out of my stress, but I don't become the type four or I will do the same thing to the people. If I become the type four and I become someone that's maybe a little more guarded or a little more melancholy, that will be just as confusing to the people I'm communicating with as if I go into my eight and I challenge. So another really interesting part of the Enneagram is that people will say they have wings. When I first took the test, I I was a two, three, and I really think maybe I'm more of a two, one. I've moved to a two, one, and that's very common. We have these wings. If you think about it like a bird and you're the bird, but you have both these wings and if you do lean toward one, you're going to move in a different direction than if you lean toward another one. So what the The goal is, is to use the wings, both wings to create a balance. So for me and my two and my helper in my helping of people, which can be good and bad. We'll talk about that. I can lean on my type one reformer. I can do it from a place that calls for justice for those people. I'm helping the the unjust, but I also need to be, um, achieve I need to worry about achievement I need to not sacrifice myself in order to do that so when I bring those both into balance I fly straight and high right so your wing is either the number directly to the right or the left of your dominant type whichever type you lean toward it's I think we just change often I don't I don't know if I'm interested in knowing exactly who where I am. Maybe I'm just, I'm in my two and right now I'm being more about my one and maybe that'll change next week. But I liked how in her book, she kind of made it more of an instinctual kind of thing. Like she made it be the way you feel about it or what makes sense to you. So an Enneagram type two, like we talked about, will either have a one wing and have several similarities to the one, or they will have a three wing and have several similar similarities to the three. You might lean more toward one wing during the first half of your life and toward the other during the second half, she she says. Your wings can also help you find more stability in your life approach because you can access both of their perspectives and behaviors in a way to find balance and staying grounded. So not only can I look to my security for that, so to my type four, I can also say, all right, where is the... Where, how do I look here? So type threes, they care about how they look. So maybe when I go into my type eight, being angry um, in my challenging, 
I'm not aware that I might be looking like an idiot, right? The three is always aware of how they look. So if I kind of lean in that and say, look, look at yourself from a perspective. What is this looking like from an outside perspective? I, I can gain some insight there, right? Or with the one, I can be a little more disciplined about how I'm reacting. So it helps me in that in that way too. In her book, Enneagram Empowerment, she talks a lot about empowerment and how it helps you. She ta- stops for a minute, and I think it's really wise to say, to, to bring up some of these points. One is to take as much time as you need to identify your dominant type. These are ways that you are going to use it to empower you. It's really, really easy to learn about the Enneagram and immediately move into a self-destructive, loathing state of its ick. I mean, they say there's a joke that when you find your Enneagram type by the way that you just repulse at all of it that has to do with that particular number, that's how you know. So take time um, and, and identify. She says, read all nine types. So we're going to go through and do specific work on each of these Enneagram types. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it one whole episode per type or if I'm going to bring them together. We just have to see how much time they take. I don't know, but it's important to listen to all of them and you will identify yourself, right? You will all see yourself in all of these. But when you look through for all of them, then, you know, you kind of can, it helps you to kind of understand it. And it's so empowering and so exciting to like, oh, that's why they're that way. That's why they act that way. Understanding my children's types changed everything. Now I know what their fear is. Now I know what their motivations are. It makes sense. So as you learn about the Enneagram, um, make a practice of observing your own behavior as you go about your day. And pause and ask yourselves, why did I do that? What was going on there? This is how you'll really find and fine-tune your Enneagram type. Also, look at the full spectrum of your personality. Don't consider yourself just strengths or just your weaknesses. Empowerment requires taking all of the positives and all of the negatives into account, right? That's the, the Enneagram symbol is known as the face of God. That's another name for it because he embodies or they embody all of the types. All of the types are required to make someone whole. And that's why there's a circle because our goal is to get to the center. Our goal is to have an equal portion of each of these things. So as we, we cannot move into the center until we understand where we are on the edges it's okay to look at our negatives. It's okay to, to, to understand that we have weaknesses. That's the best thing about the Enneagram because those are the key to the, the greatness. They are what's showing you exactly word for word how to expand and be better. So stay open to seeing your behavioral patterns that are hurting you or the people around you. Empowerment is about taking full responsibility for who you are. It's not about hyping yourself up. Don't get yourself all like, I can overcome this. I can stop being who that, I'm just going to be the strengths. That's not it. But when you pair humility of this is true for me, this is how I show up with self-compassion, then we open up possibilities to becoming more. We can't have the compassion if we're not willing to accept that that's part of who we are. So always remember that if we accept it for a minute, hold it for a minute, that the next goal is always to have self-compassion. She has a page, a word of caution, which I thought was worth talking about. She says, be kind while you learn about the Enneagram because it will highlight some things about yourself that you don't like, and this might hurt. Focus on your own growth and empowerment. You can change yourself, but you can't change other people. So don't make it about, I'm going to learn about that person so I can know how they take and figure them out. She says, you are unique and nuanced and nothing can truly fully describe you. So there will be some things about your dominant Enneagram number that doesn't apply to you. It doesn't feel right. Take with you what the, whatever guidance is helpful and let go of the rest. That's her advice. She also warns, don't tell other people their types. This can be hurtful. And I, I think, oh, 
oh, this kind of hurt me when I heard it because I'm trying to be helpful if I'm telling some other type. That's my intention. But when I read this, I thought, oh, right, that makes sense. She says, this can be hurtful because their type is based on some of their deepest fears and insecurities. So I'm highlighting that when I tell somebody their type. So encourage them or empower them to go find out the type for themselves. Also, she says, don't lock yourself into your personality as it is now or begin using it as an excuse to stay put in your current grooves and patterns. Nobody is meant to stay where they are. We are all meant to grow and improve. And we'll talk about this in the individual numbers. There's different, like there's a normal, there's a, so they have all different kind of names for it, but it's, it's kind of like, um, they'll kind of have like a dysfunctional um, version of you. So a type two will have this dysfunctional version. And then there's like kind of this normal version where people, you're just getting through life. And then there's this mature version where you be, move into a higher state of consciousness and you almost become, you almost get a superpower, right? In fact, I remember Richard were talking for a long time that everybody thought that Mother Teresa was a type two because she's a helper, right? She's gentle. After she died and all of her writings were made available, all the letters that she had written, it became clear that she was actually a type eight, which is this challenger. But a type eight looks to a type two for their balance. And that's why she looked like such a type two, because she had reformed herself or or they even say uh, sanctified herself or went through repentance. Sometimes the Enneagram has been used in um, religious areas for, for things. And so it has some of those wordings to it, but that she had gone through the work to elevate herself in a way that she didn't even look like herself. Now she wasn't pretending to be a type two. She just moved toward the center and became more, more of that. The other name besides the face of God for the actual symbol, they they look at it like a prism and it's almost like if you were to take this shape, if it was cut in glass and put it in the light, it it separates out the colors, but all of the colors exist in that prism. She takes some time to talk a little bit about self-compassion and we talked about it a little bit. She uses it a lot, but we're going to, we're going to just talk about it for a little bit more. She says your Enneagram number doesn't only show you your patterns of behavior that are holding you back. It also shows you the pain that drives that behavior. It's important to look at this pain with warmth and self-compassion so that you can find freedom from the pain. She says, if your best friend made a mistake, would it be helpful for you to criticize them and increase their guilt? It would be more helpful if you said, I know you're trying to do better. You're not the only one who is struggling. You are human. We all struggle. This mistake doesn't define you. Too bad we kind of don't say those to ourselves, but that's what she's inviting us to do. That's what I'm inviting you to do is to just have this outside perspective. That's what's great about seeing it on paper is you can kind of separate yourself from it. She goes on to say, remember to be a friend to yourself. Celebrate your strengths, your values, and your hopes. And secondly, she's like, you are only human. So it is fitting that you will see, you might see in yourself some humorous things. And you do have flaws and quirks and inconsistencies like everyone else. You can YouTube funny videos about the Enneagrams and they make fun of all the types. We all have these little things that you're going to elbow the guy person sitting next to you and say, yep, that's you, that's you. And then when it's your turn and your number shows up, you're going to sink lower into your chair because you're recognizing those things and we just have to have a little bit of fun with it, right? We just have to have a, remember, these are all important characteristics. We, we wouldn't be a whole earth without each person playing their part. She says in the book, no matter how rational a person you are, you will still have some negative thoughts that are simply irrational and that's okay. She, she wants to go into this empowered thinking. So how to look at this Enneagram type or your Enneagram type in an empowered way with empowered thoughts. Our thoughts are super powerful. I remember one time I was sitting in a therapy session and my therapist told me a story. He presented this scenario that I've always referred to and it just was huge to me. I understood it. And he asked me a question. He made me think of this scenario. He said, imagine that you were painting in your house. You decided to paint your kitchen and you were home alone 
everybody was gone. And so you finished for the day, you went up to your bed and you're sitting in your bed and you heard a noise. And the first thought that came to your mind was someone had broken into your house. He said, what would you do? And I said, oh, I would, you know, what would you do? Well, I'd probably crawl under the bed and call the police. You know, that was my first thought. That's what I would do. And he says, okay, same exact scenario. But when you went upstairs and you heard the noise, your first thought just happened to be, I must have left the window open. (gasps) I must have left the window. Now, we don't know the truth. We don't know the truth. Whether someone's breaking in or not, my thought makes everything. It could be somebody breaking in. But if my thought, my first thought, automatically made me think of my action. It, it totally changed my actions. So th- that's how powerful thoughts are. She says in the book, consider how one irrational negative thought, if it feels like a true thought, can disempower you. The thought, they don't like me, brings emotional pain along with it, such as sadness and anxiety, which triggers an impulse to make regrettable choices such as overindulgence, which is the type nines, way of doing it or perfectionism which is the type ones in reaction to that pain but that thought they don't like me is a thought because we can't you know there's no way to to really define that really quantify that but in our minds it feels very quantified and very true and so like she says that's what will happen we'll have these thoughts and then we might move into taking care of them in a way that is, it's not necessarily negative. It's kind of maybe our default, but by learning the Enneagram, we have a new way of coping. We have a new way of presenting ourselves to that pain and meeting it and overcoming it. So she also says, while learning to observe your thoughts and recognize these negative thinking traps, it's important to reflect on the deepest fears of your Enneagram type that drives so many of these thoughts. When we learn about the Enneagram, we understand ourselves and that that fear. That's why we're making those decisions. So she says we have these negative thinking traps. So the irrational negative thought is in my paint, somebody's breaking into my room. I don't have any evidence. I, I don't have that nothing yet, but that thought is there. So what does it do? It causes emotional suffering, which is all of a sudden now I'm stressed. I'm nervous. I'm scared. And then my unempowered choices, I now, someone's in my home and what do I do? Crawl under my bed. I don't take them on. I don't take ownership of my house. You know, I I have an unempowered choice because of this negative thought where the first thought, if I had just thought, okay, if I did empower thinking, which she says, notice and observe the irrational thought objectively without judgment. So if I thought that, but thought, okay, that's one observation but also I might've just left the window open. Then there's some space there to decide what I want to do next. And even if I crawl under my bed, I'm making more of a conscious decision about it. She says, recognizing, recognize the fear behind that with self-compassion. This is empowered thinking. So if I say, Oh, it would be terrifying. I'm home alone. If somebody's here, that's going to be scary. Wow. That, that is scary. Then I add an alternative empowering thought to hope to, for hope or for grounding. So I could say, okay, that's one option. If that's true, then I will take the phone with me, but I don't know yet. So I'm going to even, whether I just wait five more minutes, but I'm going to have another chance to, for another thought to, to, or the truth actually to appear. And so then she says, take a step back from your thoughts and choose empowered behavior. So like, that's what I said. So whether that's okay, I'm going to wait a few minutes and then I'm going to call the police and they will come and take care of it. That's just a total different feeling about that than just letting my feelings go running amok. So we will talk about empowered thinking and these come from cognitive behavioral therapy and I took a class on that. So it was kind of interesting to me, but we have these negative thinking traps, these these ways of talking, of, of thinking that are extremes, right? That's why I love, I always talk about living in the spectrum. As soon as somebody starts going to each end of the spectrum, we're kind of in trouble. Just, just like on the Enneagram, when we sit far out from the center, we're, we're in the most trouble. So these, these, these 
traps are usually one or the other. So we have an all or nothing thinking. You see things as either good or bad. There's no middle ground. We can get stuck in that trap. That's a, that's a thinking trap. We also have a mental filter and you filter out the positives and focus on the negatives or vice versa. We just, we got to see everything. We can't just pay attention to one side or not the other. We also overgeneralize and you think that if one bad thing will happen, it means more bad things will happen. Sometimes we personalize and so you think other people's behavior are about you. You're at the grocery store, somebody gives you a look, oh, they hate me, right? That's your thought. Maybe they're thinking about totally something else we don't know. Another is catastrophizing. So you magnify a problem or shortcoming and think that it's the worst case scenario that that's going to be exactly what happens. We also have mind reading. You assume you can tell what others are thinking. Minimization, you make your wins smaller than they are and exaggerate your failures. Fortune telling, you believe you can predict a negative future outcome. You kind of know those people. Labeling, you attach a broad label to yourself or someone else because of one event or action. Should statements, you treat your own expectations as though they are set in stone or that everybody believes those standards, like should. Emotional reasoning, you treat your feelings as factual evidence. So sometimes just because we're feeling something, this is really tender for me as a type two because feeling I'm a feeling center. We'll get into that. But that's not always factual. Disqualifying the positive is another negative thinking trap. And so you reject or argue against your positive experiences. Like, well, that was just lucky. You know those people. Well, in that case, you were nice, but not all the time. You know, these are the traps we get into. Um, and they're... They're caused by individually in our numbers by specific things that we are fearful of or that we gravitate towards. So we'll learn more about those in each of the types. She also, in this book, talks about living by your values. That's another part of learning about who you are is understanding if I'm a type two, I also have a list of values. And I'm going to put a link in the notes for a page of a values page so that you can look through it. Circle like 10 that sound right and then narrow it down to three or two, two preferably. And these are your high values. And understanding these values helps you understand why you may move into stress or how you move back away from stress. Because when your values are being threatened, it brings on a whole new layer of reaction because our values are getting hurt. She says, your values are what you consider to be the most important things in your life, your deepest beliefs about how you think you should live. They are things like authenticity, family, hope, advocacy, and creativity. Like I say, there's a page of, I don't even know, 50, 100, I don't know. Your values are what make life meaningful and worthwhile. Living in step with your values gives you confidence Living against your values brings guilt and self-doubt. If family is one of your deepest values, but you devote all of your free time to personal pursuits, this will create dissonance. If you are prioritizing one of your values, another one of your values is getting ignored. So let's say you do have personal achievements as a value, but you're spending all your time there and you're not paying attention to your family, then you know you are not living authentically and you're not even living honestly. Isn't that interesting? When your actions match your values, you have confidence. So, so many times we just think, I am confident, I am confident, I am confident, and that's helpful. But what if we actually looked at what's causing us to not be confident and have tools and keys and ideas and a a map to get us real life self-confidence. We don't have to convince ourselves of it. We don't have to like sit and try and gaslight ourselves in ways that we have it. Let's authentically have it. And the Enneagram is the best tool, one of the best tools for that. She takes time in this book to talk about relationship empowerment. You cannot change or improve other people, she says, but you can change yourself. But I think in changing yourself, you can improve relationships because relationships are almost an entity by themselves. So if you change yourself and you change the relationship, 
then that's what you're really looking for. The Enneagram can help you find the commonalities between you and another person. It can honor the differences between you and another person. It opens your perspective. It increases your compassion and understanding. You learn to communicate more effectively when you understand the Enneagram. You identify and you can learn to express your own needs. We always just kind of, uh, we, there's a, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> we hesitate about our own needs because we're just trained to, to kind of do that. But the Enneagram, when you get to know yourself, then you just say, oh, that's my need because I'm a two. It's not because, not necessarily so personalized. It's like, that's what twos do, people. So it's helpful. And it helps you discover how to have healthier boundaries. Not everyone experiences the world the same way you do. Learning about the Enneagram is like learning that there are nine basic types of eyeglasses. And each one shows the world with a different set of colors, a different set of textures, and a different set of things that are in and out of focus. Once you realize that other people like your mom or your friend or your coworker or your spouse are all wearing different types of eyeglasses than you are, relationship dynamics start to make a lot more sense. You start to understand why other people act the way they do and why it's so different from how you act. So we're going to move into there's these subtypes or there's these kind of different uh, ways that that the different types kind of have things in common and understanding the subtypes brings on this whole layer is what she's talking about. That's why it's like, okay, we have glasses, but now we have a texture and we have a color. It makes a big difference to understand these types, these subtypes. So the first set of subtypes are the versions that of each type that represent different priorities and needs. Any Enneagram type can be any subtype. The three subtypes are a social subtype. These types prioritize the need for group belonging and social status. The sexual subtype is what they call it, which is really more about connecting. It's really about deep connection. And I am probably this type. These types prioritize the need for meaningful individual connections and experiences. And then the self-preservation subtype, which I would call them the they have physical needs. They're worried about their physical needs. These types prioritize the need for security and material necessities. All of us have physical needs, social needs, and a need for deep connection and meaning. And each of these needs is important, but we will each naturally focus our attention on some of these needs more than others, allowing the others to kind of fall out of focus. And that's true for me. I don't have the need to look well for other people. I've had so many people say, you can just show up without your makeup on. And I'm, how do you do that? And I just think, how do you not? This is just who, who I am. Or sometimes I can just, you know, if I'm not hungry, I just skip a meal and it doesn't bother me. Other people, they can't do that. So when we understand that there's these types, these subtypes, it makes sense. And we can understand more about ourselves and understand our needs and also be patient and kind for other people's priorities and their subtypes. So she gives some scenarios. So when you walk into a party, what do you pay attention to first? So people with a social subtype, they might um, look at the group dynamic, the social structure at play, who's there, who's hosting, who's with who. If notable people are there, they'll just walk in a room and that's who they'll notice. Not me. Two, um, which is, this is the deep connection. You'll walk into the room and you'll say at a party and you'll say uh, that you'll like notice, hey, I want to talk to that person. You'll make a connection you'd like to make with a person, an opportunity for an experience that you would make your night more meaningful. Totally do that. Be like, hey, ooh, it'd be cool. They're having prizes. Ooh, it'd be so cool if I won that prize. <laughs> and that just was what comes to me first. I'm not looking around at who's this? Or I'd be like, oh, it'd be so fun if I got to sit by that person. I'm all about the experience. The physical needs or self-preservation person, the material details of the situation, they'll notice. They'll notice the food, the drink options, the budget, and guess what was spent on the event. They'll look at fire exits, right? Here's another scenario. When you make a big life decision, which outcome are you born naturally inclined toward? Number one, are you as the outcome that ensures a good social support or good reputation or community belonging? Is it the outcome that gives you a life experience that feels meaningful and important to you? 
or is it an outcome that maintains your financial security and makes most logical sense? The last scenario is when you invest in a new living room sofa, which of the following will be your priority? Number one, as the social, the sofa that will look the most expensive or be best suited to your social or hosting needs. It's like somebody says, I need the giant couch because we're going to have lots of party. That's their, that's their need. Where a person with the deep connection or sexual subtype, they look at a sofa that's the most beautiful or the most special or the most unique. I just want something that nobody else has all the time. That's like my priority. Or the third or the the self-preservation subtypes, they will look at the sofa that has the best deal or maybe it's the most comfortable. So can you see how understanding this about yourself as a subtype, you know, as a two with, I'm I'm a helper, but my goal in helping is not so that I look good in the world or that I get my physical needs met. It's because I'm trying to make connections. And so when someone stops me from making connections, then I hurt, right? Or more importantly, when I somebody doesn't connect with me, I feel shame. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Any type could have any subtype. So this one's just any type. Where some of the other little subtypes we'll talk about, they're kind of more suited to certain specific numbers, Type four will always look different than a six. A four and a six who share the same subtype might experience more, experience things in common and then they would maybe if they didn't have that subtype. So that's why sometimes you're like, I don't know, I'm kind of that way with that person. You think they're your same type because they show up and want to buy a couch the same way as you, but just to not get stuck there. But your dominant type describes the key elements that make you tick while your subtype describes what you prioritize and pay attention to in your life. So that's the difference. There are also three stances or movements, I would say, that show up in the Enneagram. And your Enneagram stance describes your interpersonal style and typical patterns of getting your needs met. So we have a compliant stance. This are types one, two, and six. They will move towards someone. There was a episode of Seinfeld where there's the close talker, right? This person's going to have a compliance stance. They move toward the person. There's people with a withdrawn stance. These are types four, five, and nine, and their nature, their movement is to move away. They might stand a little further away from someone typically, or they might be suspicious, maybe more of another person until they've proven themselves, but their energy or their movement's going to be first to kind of withdraw until they are safe or until something moves them forward where me as a type two, I might move right in and say, yep, I, I love you. You're the greatest. And I haven't even met them yet. Right. So, so it, one's not better than the other. We just have to understand the other stance is an assertive stance. This is threes, sevens, and eights. These move against others. So they're just kind of the people that, you know, like, especially a type eight, if you tell, if, if a type eight loves the color yellow and you said, oh, I love the color yellow, they are more likely to say, well, I don't. And they just want to be different. They want to be uh, against. That's why they're called the challenger. It's just in their nature. And what would we be without them? Because we need people like that. Those with the compliance stance, type one, two, and six, move toward others to get their needs met. Ones move toward others for approval, twos for love, and sixes for security. Those with the withdrawn stance, types four, five, and nine, move away from others to get their needs met. Turning inward, fours move away from the sense that they lack something in the outside world. Fives move away from the feeling that they are inadequate. And nines move away from conflict and discomfort. Those with the assertive stance, three, seven, and eight, move straight ahead and often against others to get their needs needs met. Threes move toward their goals. They're just headstrong toward their goals, and maybe they might even run over a few people along the way if they're not careful. Sevens move toward satisfaction, which, again, can be negative. Um, If you're just satisfying yourself all the time, there's that overindulgence part of their their experience too and eights toward their own agenda same thing it's kind of like they're not seeing 
another person's agenda. But then if you get a type eight that's on ahead of a group and they have an agenda, that type eight's going to move forward and get it done, right? So there's always positives. Not everything is a negative. There's always a positive to everything that we might consider a negative. And that's what's learning about the Enneagram. You understand that about yourself. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, that's my strength. That's not my weakness. I just need to look at it a little different when I understand how I use it. So learning about your Enneagram stance will bring unique insight into your own tendencies regarding healthy boundaries or the lack of them. So like a type two might have no boundaries, not be good at boundaries, or a type four or five maybe have too big of boundaries. So healthy boundary keeping is empowering for everyone. Again, this stance is is part of the pattern on the symbol, the actual circle with the nine points. They make sense. The pattern makes sense. So healthy boundaries for the types can look like this. Type one might have a healthy boundary that they tell themselves that says their decisions are not my responsibility. That's their mantra. A type two healthy boundary would be their needs are not my responsibility. A type three healthy boundary would be their success is not my responsibility. Type four, their response to me is not my responsibility. Type five healthy boundary would be their opinions are not my responsibility. Type six, their choices are not my responsibility. Type seven, their happiness is not my responsibility. Type eight, their safety is not my responsibility. Type nine, their comfort is not my responsibility. The last area where we kind of group the different types together are these centers of wisdom. There's a heart center or feeling centered, there's a body center, and there's a mind or thinking center. Eights, nines, and ones operate primarily out of the body center and experience the world through intuition, sensing, and gut instinct. They share a common experience with anger. Twos, threes, and fours operate primarily out of their heart center and experience life through their emotions and feelings. They share the key emotion of shame. Five, sixes, and sevens operate primarily out of the head center, experiencing life through thoughts and information. They share the emotion of fear. Anger, shame, and fear are emotions that we all experience, but one of these emotions acts as a stronger force in your life than others. They might be a motivator. So for me as a type two, trying to not be ashamed by doing the right thing that, you know, almost taking into my one, doing the right thing or into my three, achieving something, shame is what I'm trying to avoid. Shame might be something that shows up when it shouldn't like anger might for eights nines and ones like it's it's like i might automatically go to shame or feel bad about myself or insecure maybe when like everyone else is like i don't i don't understand why you're feeling bad about yourself it's fine where we might say to i might say to an eight nine or one like what's the deal why are you so angry about this and it just is frustrating to them because it feels just so real to them the anger is so necessary where for me that self that self-deprecation or the worry that i'm not enough just feels like true and they're just like oh just get over that well, no, we can't just get over those things. We have to learn why and what and how, and that's what the Enneagram is all about. So depending on your Enneagram number, you use one of these centers more than others, but you have the ability to act and use all three centers. You can utilize or overutilize your center wisdom. So I am a feelings person. I can overuse my feelings and leave out, I need to bring, I need to have some logic or thinking in there. And I need to just have some body, which is intuition in there. So I can overutilize it or underutilize it, either relying either too much or too little on your thoughts, your feelings, your instincts, then you would get into trouble. So ideally we use these in balance, but just knowing which one you're going to go to and saying, okay, there's that, there's my natural one. Now let's bring in the others and, and move ourselves to the center. Remember? 
The common emotion between numbers in the body center, which is the eights, nines, and ones, is anger. While eights tend to outwardly express their anger, nines ignore or fall asleep to their anger and are often not even aware of it until it boils over. And ones internalize their anger, which might seep out as passive aggression or stifled irritation. When you think of anger, think of the visceral way it shows up in your body when you feel it. It brings a tangible heat with it. It brings a force and a weight. Body center types move through the world with gut impulses that they either act on or suppress. Sometimes one's important, sometimes it's not the right thing to do. To act or to suppress, it depends. These type tend to experience and process life through their perceptions, instincts, and senses more than through conscious emotions or thoughts. The head centers, the five, six, and sevens, fear is the common emotion between numbers in this head center. Fives retreat inward into their own internal experience, responding to the fear that they cannot completely navigate in the outside world. Sixes move toward outside sources of guidance of guidance and security moving away from the internal fear and they so they'll kind of look to a leader maybe like what should i do instead of you know they'll look to someone else for advice and sevens move toward what they what will fill their minds up with satisfaction and distraction running from the internal fear that they will that if they stop to fill their fear or their painful emotions they will be overcome and not be okay Think of what it's like to experience the emotion of fear. How does it fill your headspace with thoughts of danger or with thoughts of distraction from thoughts of danger? Or imagine your fear lights your head and mind telling you to stay up on a high alert. This is a characteristics of head types who process life primarily through thinking more than through feeling and sensing. And the heart centers, twos, threes, and fours. Shame is a common emotion in the heart center. Shame is a deep insecurity that who you are is not good enough. Heart-centered types address this shame in different ways. Twos, by trying to win the affection of others. Threes, by trying to earn the admiration of others. And fours, by trying to embody enough individuality and uniqueness to prove their own worth to themselves. Think of what it is like to experience the emotion of shame, the way this feeling moves like a wave across the heart and how it feels dark and clouds gather in your soul. The feelings-oriented experience of heart-centered types live out of their emotions more than they do out of their thoughts and their gut instincts. So that is an introduction to the Enneagram. So what we will do, what I'm going to do is take them down and break them down bit by bit, get into really big detail and like I said at the beginning, it's important to listen to all of them, to understand them, to to know what makes them do the things that they do. It just makes your relationships much better and more compassionate. So we'll see you next time as we start with number one, the reformer. We invite you to thewholenessnetwork.com where you'll find the wholeness library. Inside, you'll find tutorials, downloads, mini classes, and all sorts of streaming content for you on your wholeness journey.